This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Today on the State of the World from NPR, voices from both Gaza and Israel as the violence continues. I'm Greg Dixon. As we're recording this on Wednesday, October 11th, it is the fifth day of Israeli airstrikes on Gaza in retaliation for Hamas's attack on Israel. There are more than 1,000 dead on both sides, including many civilians. Gaza, the home of some 2 million people, is now without electricity, according to officials. We're going to hear now from both Gaza and from Israel. First, Aya Batraoui is in Israel, but has been talking to people in Gaza. She's with me now. Hi, Aya. Hi, Greg. So, Aya, what have you learned in your reporting about the situation now in Gaza? Well, the situation in Gaza has reached dire catastrophic humanitarian crisis levels. Uh, That is what I'm hearing from aid workers on the ground there. What happened today specifically was that the main Gaza power plant ran out of fuel and so had to completely shut down. And that is because Israel has said it has a full siege over the Gaza Strip, which means it is not allowing any electricity, fuel, food, even water to get into the Gaza Strip. That puts the entire strip almost into complete darkness unless you have an extra generator, but even then you are about to soon run out of fuel. Let's hear now from the spokesperson for the International Committee of the Red Cross in Gaza. His name is Hisham Mahanna about the situation there. We fear that hospitals may turn into graveyards if they uh, they are not fed with electricity. They are now running either on generators or solar systems, which are not enough to maintain them operational. You know, a, a whole generation of youth have grown up knowing nothing but closed borders and lack of hope. We have an unemployment issue, food insecurity issue in Gaza. Um, um, and, and now the, the risk is not only for those who are injured, but rather for other patients who are cancer patients, uh, kidney dialysis uh, patients whose like, very life depends on receiving this kind of medical uh, intervention. So as you heard there, the situation is really dire, not just for wounded uh, people and people being rushed to the hospital from the airstrikes, Israeli airstrikes, but also for just the general population that needs regular treatment. And even him, he told me his wife is now 36 weeks pregnant, and he's also very worried about her and how she will deliver the baby. And, you know, the situation that it's unfolding is that this has only been a few days, and already the death toll is quite high in the Gaza Strip. Um, Half of those uh, killed or more than half have been already women and children. And the images that come out of Gaza have shown, you know, children under the rubble. It looks like a disaster from an earthquake, except there's no international rescue teams coming in to help. Wow. That, I mean, that is a dire situation and a vivid scene that he's describing there um, at the hospital. But as you've been saying, all of Gaza is now without power and they're they're cut off from food water and fuel. What else do you know about how people are coping there? Well, the biggest threat to people's life is actually the aerial bombardment. It's not just the water and fuel. People have been saying that there's nowhere to go. The Gaza Strip is under a complete siege and there's no safe place to hide. I spoke with a woman who was sheltering in a house, her uncle's house, with other relatives, extended family, because her house was bombed. In this case, she did get a warning. Uh, They did get a warning uh, from the Israeli military. They send these warnings out sometimes, and they give people just a few minutes to leave and evacuate, and they barely have time to escape with the clothes on their backs. Until now, we don't have water, we don't have food, we don't have anything to live. 
So we feel our uh, my dream and our dream again. It's my it's my three times three times they feel uh, uh, my dream and my sister dream and my friends dream. So Tasneem Ali, as you just heard her say, there's no hope anymore. There's just no hope for her and her friends and her sisters. And she's a dental student. She told me that she's consistently been set back. Uh, living in Gaza. She said that she had been wounded in a previous Israeli war in Gaza. She said she really wanted to study medicine abroad. She couldn't leave the Gaza Strip because of the blockade. As you could hear in her voice, there's no hope left. And there's this constant fear that you're going to die at any moment. And there's I sp- everyone I've spoken to in Gaza Strip has said to me, they don't think they're going to make it through this war. They don't think they're going to survive this conflict. That's an intense sentiment to hear from, from people inside Gaza. It really is. And, you know, again, the situation for them is that there is nowhere to hide, there's nowhere to leave, and there's nowhere to go. That's NPR's Aya Betraoui. Aya, thanks for your reporting. Please stay safe. Thank you, Greg. NPR's Daniel Estrin is in Stirot in southern Israel near Gaza. It's one of the cities that was attacked by the wave of Hamas militants touching off the crisis. As he tells us, people are still reeling over what took place there. And a warning, this report contains graphic descriptions of violence. The police station in the city of Sderot is gone. This is the scene of a 24-hour firefight between Palestinian militants who came in from Gaza, took over this police station, killed the police officers inside. Israeli police then came, surrounded it, and there was a 24-hour firefight here. A tank rolled through, says Dolev Derry, who lives next door, and it decimated the rocket-proof police station, killing the militants inside. A symbol of Israeli security in the city, razed to the ground, cleared away by bulldozers. We stop at an apartment building hit by Gaza rocket fire just yesterday. There are some people living there who didn't evacuate. A Ukrainian immigrant who's a caregiver for an ill Holocaust survivor. So one woman from a country at war taking care of a survivor of another war in a country fighting a new war. And a few floors above, there are eight guest workers from China. They're construction workers. They're in a room with beds and cooking pots. We call NPR's Anthony Kuhn in Asia to translate Jianhua, who says their boss told them there weren't any vehicles to get them out. He says that basically they've been hearing rocket and uh, gunfire since Saturday night, and therefore they've been very afraid. Uh, But they've been reassured by the presence of uh, Israeli soldiers and police. This city of about 35,000 is about half a mile from the Gaza border. You can hear the booms of the fighting. At the entrance of the city, there's a reinforced outdoor shelter, a rest stop for medics and soldiers. My role is I'm a a sergeant, mainly in the field I lead a team. Um, We were here from Sabbath. Effie Menachem, an immigrant from the UK, is the sergeant of a special forces unit of the paramilitary border police. He tells us what he saw on the first day of the attack. The first thing I uh, encountered was um, on one side of the road, I've got, uh, we've got a hostage situation going on where they've got complete control of a house with the hostages inside. On the left, we've got um, a few terrorists who entered the home and uh, massacred the family that were inside. And we knew that there were around two terrorists left alive over there. Um, I climbed onto a roof with the head of my unit. I identified the terrorists right under me. 
on probably like five meters. Uh, I shot down at him 15 times, uh, got rid of him. Then we joined up, we, uh, we drove over to different villages which we knew were under attack. Uh, one was Miftahim, where we found lots of dead bodies everywhere. There were bodies everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Children slaughtered, heads chopped off, bodies burnt. Um, heads chopped off? Did you see that yourself? I saw everything. I saw things which you wouldn't want to see. Burnt bodies everywhere. Uh, brutalized body. They were chopped off or they were burnt off? Or yeah, the... I don't know exactly what they did. A bit of both, maybe. Have you had a chance to breathe, maybe cry? No. Any any emotions you lock away, you keep it you keep it away. You stay tight knit with your team. You stay together. You sit together. You talk together. Many a lot of jokes, dark humor, and keeping morale high. And we're here to fight. Do you think about what's happening on the other side in Gaza right now? No. No. I I hear every now and again news or whatever. I tell my team don't don't open the news. Don't look at the news. It's not relevant. What only thing that's relevant is here the mission we have. You can't look at the larger picture. What we see is what we see, and we move on, we keep fighting. At this makeshift rest area is medic Naomi Galeano, who also responded that day. You throw the keys at us and say, just say, go, go. So it was me and the driver uh, in one ambulance. We started to go through the road, and you see the bodies all over. In the first kilometer, you see families butchered next to their cars or in their cars. There is no army yet. It's 2 o'clock, like 2.30. The army only got there at like 4. You're just like in your head, you're like, I want to take as many live people as I can. How many live people did you take? I don't know. Not enough. There were more dead than live. The world doesn't even know yet the amount of butchered bodies. And, and we're with the commando forces. And they went in. You hear gunshots. And then they opened the gate. And they lined us up, all the medics, in a line. And they start throwing injured bodies out. And then the doctors, like, they're checking if there is any pulse to the ambulance. No pulse, side. We didn't even, we didn't even stop to do a CPR because, you know, you're under fire. You don't even stop to do that. And at some point, the soldiers stopped me. And I'm just like, please take my friend's body. Please take my friend's body. Please don't leave him. And, and you, like, you look at him and you're like, no, I can't. I'm sorry. We only... We only take the live ones. You have a necklace on with two kids. Are those? Do you have two kids? Yeah, I have two boys. Yeah, two amazing boys, two and a half and six. Do you think about your kids in these last couple of days? All the time, I speak with them all the time in video, chat, and everything. And they know I'm out here. Um, what do you tell them? So the, my big kid is, you know, it's is pretty is pretty That's smart. A, oh, sorry. Yeah, it's pretty, We just see a boom yeah. there. What is that? That's a rocket and... Yeah, that's uh, a rocket towards us. One minute. No, is it a rocket or is it a... Is it a... Hey, the guns are just called everyone to come inside the safe room. Yeah. We are squeezed in here with the medics, with the soldiers. Get in, get in, get in. Wow, you can feel these booms on the walls of this concrete safe house. We step outside and... Okay, I gotta go, sorry. She's running, she's, she's running to the ambulance. Rockets? 
they speed away in their ambulance as the war rages on on its fifth day. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Steyrot. That's the State of the World from NPR News. We'll see you again soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. Each week, hosts Lizanne Saunders, Schwab's chief investment strategist, and Kathy Jones, Schwab's chief fixed income strategist, along with their guests, analyze economic developments and bring context to conversations around stocks, fixed income, the economy, and more. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts.